those of you who may not be aware, we're going through a series right now of why I'm not. And this is me explaining why I'm not various things. And so I've spoken before for several weeks on why I'm not an atheist. We've had someone else present a class on on uh, why I'm not a Buddhist. A friend of mine from England came in and taught that. But today is part two where we open the door of why I'm not an agnostic. Now, an agnostic, as we discussed last week, is someone who just doesn't believe in God, but, but they don't say there is no God. They just say, King's X, I can't decide. I can't make a decision between the camp that says there's no God or the camp that says there is a God. So they don't believe in God. They're just not ready to say that they're certain that there's no God. So that's what we started last week, and I'd like to start this week with a little bit of a different story for you. Most of you are aware of the Oxford professor, now deceased, died on the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated, by the way, trivia buffs, uh, C.S. Lewis. In his Chronicles of Narnia, he tells the story about a prince who had been captured and was being held in Underworld. Now, Underworld was a cave-like existence. It was truly under the world. didn't have the sky and the sun and the stars. It was an entire world that was subterranean, that existed under the ground. Bless you. And the prince was there, and, and, and some folks from, from our world came to rescue the prince. Uh, Clarence Eustace Scrub was one of the ones that went to rescue the prince, if you remember him from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So three folks come in to rescue the prince. And this story is set up, and the people in Underworld are faced with this question. Is there a world other than underworld? The people and the prince under a spell from the evil wicked queen thought underworld was the only world there was. It was the world that they saw. It was the world that they walked in. And the idea that there was some other world out there beyond this subterranean cavern-like existence was something they couldn't believe. And so the witch appears as the prince is being set free. And the prince is set free from being held by this silver enchanted chair. And there's clarity in the prince's mind and in those who set him free as they say, wait a minute, there is a different world other than underworld. There's a real world out there. And the witch throws some stuff on a fire and a green smoke kind of hazes in and they become bewitched again and their memories of the other world start to fade. But the the, the witch, she tells them, there was never any world but mine. And under her spell... They start believing it. 
But one of them says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know there's another world. I remember there's another world because it has a sun. There's this sun that, that rises from one side and it goes across the sky and it sets. There's this sun. And she said, the witch says, oh, what, what is this silly sun of which you speak? This, what, what, what do you mean there's a sun? He says, well, it's like, it's like the lamps that are down here in Underworld, except it's so much bigger than the lamps. She says, Right, right, right. And he says, and she says, what, what are they, what does this son of yours hang from? Well, it doesn't really hang from anything. It's just, it's in the sky. She says, there never was a son. All you've done is taken what you've seen here, the lamps, and magnified it in your dreams as if it were something supersized and spectacular. But there is no other world than mine. There is no sun. All of this is just your dreaming, your imagination. And then, and then, then they said, but wait a minute. I can remember stars. I can remember Aslan, the lion. She says, the lion? What's a lion? Well, it's like, You've got cats here in Underworld, except much, much bigger and, and much more ferocious. And, and the witch says, oh, there you go dreaming again, taking the little things of this world and growing them up in your dreams. There's no such thing as a lion. I want to give you a section out of the book at this point and let you read it with me. This is what the witch tells. You've seen lamps, and so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You've seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat, and it's to be called a lion. Well, tis a pretty make-believe, though, to say truth. It would suit you all better if you were younger. And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine which is the only world. Even you children are too old for such play. Aren't you ashamed of your toys? Come, all of you, put these childish tricks away. I have work for you in the real world. There's no Narnia, there's no overworld, there's no sky, there's no sun, there's no God. Aslan, the lion. That story... In, a, in, an, in, in an allegorical store, story way, should grab you and challenge you. What is reality and what is the dream? I would suggest to you that as I understand the story, but also as I look at life, and I want to make it clear from the beginning as I do each class, I am not an agnostic. This is the class on why I'm not, because I believe the concept that there is no God mimics the same arguments that the witch did for those people in Underworld trying to convince them there's no sky, there's no sun, there's no God. 
And what I think the best evidence for us, the best way we're going to come to grips with whether or not there's a God, and if so, what kind of God, is nothing more hard than the simplest child's toy. We are all living proof of reality, whatever reality may be. If we truly exist, and Nick Bostrom and I think Elon Musk is now jumping onto that train, if they're wrong, which I think they are, and we're not just a computer program, if we're real, then reality, we are evidence of it. And we need to look at ourselves and see what kind of hole we fit in. If you and I are the pegs that go into the holes. And let, let, let me redraw that for a moment because the picture uh, is, we can do better than that. Well, my heart won't do better, but the concept can do better. All right, if this is reality, Okay, don't quit laughing. Okay, this is reality. And we are the pegs. Okay? We can look at the hole. If the peg matches the hole in reality, we know we have a good grip of what reality is. We have evidence of reality by looking at ourselves as the peg. Now, I may tell you, yes, I am a peg. But if I am a square peg and I'm trying to wedge myself into a round hole and that round hole is reality, then I am not consistent with reality. I might tell you I'm a square peg, but if I came from that hole, I'm not. So what I want us to do is I want us to look carefully and determine which world is real. I want us to figure out, is a worldview that says there is no God real, or is the worldview that says there is God real? Which one handles the the what are we round pegs or square pegs? Which is reality? We know by looking at our lives. So I talked about this last week, but I need to put it back up here because these are, gee, I heard it once, I've got it for the rest of my life concepts. And you can't understand the rest of this class without us building upon it. So let's take what we said last week, and it was interesting for me to get some emails from many of you last week. One of the emails I got from an agnostic was, was challenging some of these points, and it's a delightful opportunity for me to say, not only through the email, but for me to say here live, let's look at these again, because this this is logic. This is not, gee, Mark's just sitting there doing his lawyer thing. No, this is just two plus two is four. This is simple logic. 
Here it is. If there is no God, then all human beings are, are sacks of chemicals. I say a sack of chemicals because my chemicals aren't oozing out over onto Blake. They're pretty self-contained in this thing we call skin. But my chemicals are in there. Most of it, water. But I got other chemicals. I've got salt. I've got other elements within me. Lots of carbon in this thing. So, I'm a sack of chemicals. And if there's no God, that's all I am. If there's no God, then I can say that some of my chemicals are having electrical interactions. My synapses in my brain are firing. The neurons are connected in some strange way where I'm able to have what we call thoughts. Now this is one of the places where my email friend took issue with me and said, but, but, but our thoughts make us different than everyone else. Okay, but hold on. I said this. Here's the problem. If there's no God, yes, I can say that my sack of chemical electric interactions may differ from the, let's see, what are lawyers like? Sharks. They may differ from the puffer fish. They may differ from our dog, Tizzy. Sarah's dog, Tizzy. Sorry, Sarah. Which means you have to take her out after church. They may differ, but that's what they are. They're just electrical interactions. They're just thoughts. If there's no God, somehow in the history of the cosmos, out of the gazillions of stars and galaxies, there's this far-flung galaxy called the Snickers bar. No, the Milky Way. And in the Milky Way, out on one of the branches is our sun. And out around our sun are these dirt clods going around. And one of them is called Earth. And somehow in the midst of antiquity and the billions of years, Earth has gotten some chemicals together. And with two hydrogen elements combining with an oxygen element, we get agua, water. And somehow in this soup of water, there came at a certain time a conglomeration of elements that bound together somehow and through some electrical fusion began some life process 
But let's not be fooled. If there's no God in this equation, all this is is just chemicals. It's just at some point those chemicals reach a point where they're interacting because they've conglomerated enough and become complex enough to where they interact and actually start doing what we call thinking. But all it is is just some electrical interactions of our sacks of chemicals if there's no God. Now here's the problem. If that's all we are, then where on earth do we find objective right and wrong? Now again, I want to make sure we're really clear on this term today so we're coming back to the Elmo. We need to make sure we understand the difference between the words objective and subjective. These are important words in a lot of different fields. They're certainly important in philosophy and they're certainly important in ethics. So, objective... Well, let's start with subjective. Subjective means me. Subjective means it's whatever I think it is. If this is me, subjective is what's in my mind. It's what I decide. It doesn't have to be true. doesn't have to be right. It's just whatever I want it to be. The most healthy, best food, nutritious, live the longest food you can possibly eat is tied. It's a tie between pizza with every kind of high fat meat you can put on it. Put in a sausage, put in a pepperoni, put it all on there. It's a tie between that and a double cheeseburger with french fries and a real ice cream milkshake. Now, if I want to tell you that's the most nutritious food that could ever be existing for humanity, it will, it will, it digests easier than mother's milk. It does not make you obese. It does not increase your cholesterol. Blood pressure basically can disappear if you eat this. Get off all your medications. This is the diet to end all diets. And if it's not working for you totally, add chocolate. That's the only thing really missing. Make sure it's milk chocolate. Extra heavy on the sugar. Okay, Now, I can tell you, but for me to tell you that's what I think, that's what I feel, I'm giving you the subjective opinion. That's my opinion. Okay? Objective means it's outside of me. It's not me. It's somewhere else. It's real. Whether I think it's real or or not. It's spinach. Whether I think it is or not. It's lean fish cooked without butter. 
Whether I think it is or not, it's broccoli. Whether I think it is or not, steamed, again, not coated in butter and not with chocolate fondue all over it or cheese sauce. Objective means something that's real outside of us. So when it comes to, instead of food, let's talk ethics. I may tell you it's very ethical when you're not looking for me to put my hand in your purse or your wallet and steal your money. Well, you can't do that. That's wrong. Oh, no. I feel in my heart it's right. It's only wrong if you do it to me. That is a subjective ethic. It all just, look, you're just a sack of chemicals anyway. Who says chemicals have property rights? Objective ethics means no, it is wrong to do certain things whether we want to admit it or not. I cannot steal from you just because I want to and won't get caught. Now, we may argue over what the ethic is. We may say, well, you think it's wrong to do this, but I don't think it's wrong. That's an argument that we have to sort through. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying here this idea that there is a real right and wrong that is existing, whether you and I agree with it or not, that's an objective ethic. It's what's real, whether we agree or not. Most people will admit that raping someone is wrong, even if the rapist thinks it's okay to do. Because the rapist doesn't get to define what's right or wrong. Most people will agree that the ethnic cleansing of Hitler was wrong. Most people will agree that the institution of slavery in the Western world was wrong. Most people will agree that Stalin's death camps were wrong. And it doesn't matter what the people say. We know it's wrong. And when we know that, we're defining the kind of whole that is in reality. So, there's nothing that sets objective right and wrong if there is no God. If there's no God, look, if all we are is a sack of chemicals with electrical interactions, what is it in this grand cosmos that says it's wrong for one sack of chemicals to alter another sack of chemicals. Altering a sack of chemicals is a chemical way of saying kill, for example. Or rape, for example. Sexually assault, for example. If there's no God... Now, there may be a reason we say, well, it's still wrong to do it, but it's not an objective See, it's, it's not something that's outside of us saying it. It's just something we've decided. We're going to look at that in a minute. But the bottom line is, if there's no God, space dust is space dust. And that's what we are. We've just come together in little sacks. We're little nodules of space dust doing electrical chemical things in our brains. 
the contrary worldview is the one that's in the Judeo-Christian God that I'm using in this class because that's the one I believe in. And it is, is that there is the blue circle I've put there. There's space and time. There is this cosmos. But outside of it is a God who is moral himself. Personal and moral. So there's something outside of all of us that can dictate what's good and evil. What's right and wrong. Moral, immoral. We don't have to look to ourselves to make those determinations. We just need to understand what they are through contemplating the divine. So the Christian worldview says that there's an infinite and personal and moral God and that we human beings are made uniquely in his image. There's a difference between us and the cattle of the field. There's a difference between us and the sharks of the ocean. There's a difference between us and the little sack of chemicals called the mosquito walking around with the Zika virus. That's a sack within a sack. There's a difference between us because, according to the Christian worldview, we're made where we're hardwired. We're already speaking the language of God's morality. It is stamped into the essence of who we are, and we couldn't get away from it if we tried. So these are very different worldviews. The idea that we're made in God's image, that we exist to be in a relationship with God, that we don't measure up, those are other things that we'll talk about as we get further down the line. But I said this slide last week. This is the square peg in the round hole. If the hole is round, I may tell you I'm a square peg, but I can't be a square peg and fit into that reality. i got to be round. The peg has to fit in the hole. If the, if the reality says round holes only, and I walk around telling you, hey, I'm in that reality, I'm a round hole, a round peg. Even though I might try and delude myself and you into thinking I'm square. So which world is real? There's only one reality. We've got to pick. Everyone's going to be on one side of this or the other, if these are the only two choices. When we get to Buddha, when we get to, to, to Islam, when we get to some of the other religions, we'll look at those choices as well. But right now, i got a choice. I can be no God or I can be God. And I got to tell you, the way to tell which reality is real is by looking at the whole. Does the whole fit my view? If the whole fits my view, I, my view is real. If the whole doesn't fit my view, my view is not real. If reality is not explained by my view of the world, then my view of the world is wrong. So is there no God? If there's no God, I may, look, we're all here on a Sunday morning, but if there's no God, what a ridiculous use of our time. 
We may say we believe all of these things, but if the objective truth is there is no God, we're just a bunch of diluted sacks of chemicals whose, chem- whose electricity is doing bizarro things in their head. But here's the key. If there is a God, everybody lives in that reality. That's the real world. It's just some people are deluded. These are the people in underworld who think that that's all there is and don't realize that there really is a sun, and really is a sky, there really are stars, there really is Aslan. These are the people who think they live in a world with no God, but if you watch their lives, their lives and their view of the world are only explained by the reality of what really exists. And that's the key. So, which world is real? We put it in the evidence and we decide. Is the evidence that there's no God or is the evidence that there's God? The evidence that I want to look at again this week in more detail is this idea of right and wrong being objective. The worldview that says there's no God says... In this cosmic soup of chemicals, in this space and time we call nature or the natural, there's nothing else beyond it and there's nothing that defines right and wrong. I think that runs counter to everything that we know and everything we do. I think that we are we are round pegs that go into round holes and anybody who tries to say no, 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 I'm there's no God I'm a square peg they're not a square peg, they couldn't have come out of the round hole if they were a square peg and they can't go back in, won't fit so here's what I'd like to do here's the question, is there objective morality and if so, where does it come from I will contend to you that if there's no God, there's no objective morality. That's it. Now, I've had this knockdown, drag out fight with some really nice fella from Oxford who is absolutely convinced that you can have objective morality without a God. But he can't get there, it, it doesn't work. Let me explain. It's easy to find where there's objective morality under the Christian worldview. It comes from God. It's who he is. We're made in his image. It's there. But what's the objective morality for us if there's no God? Is it what society decides? Do we just say, hey, objective morality is whatever the culture allows? Well, now I've got some bad news for you. Because the culture is not a giving culture. And the culture changes. Our culture today, Miss Carolyn, can I use you as an example? You're a beautiful woman. Would you please come up here for just a moment? Do you all know Miss Carolyn, our hat queen? Okay. 
Miss Carolyn and I have a different skin tone. Not much. <laughs> she she has a better tan than I do. Okay. Now there was a time in Western culture where the white Anglo-Saxons thought they had a greater right to exist than people who did not have the same skin tone, and they sold them and kept them in chains in slavery. It's the most deplorable part of our history in America, in my opinion. Now, culture then said it was okay. Was it okay? No. No. Never been okay. Not right. Thank you, Miss Caroline. You're welcome. Thank you. Watch your step. Help her down, Richard. It's never been right. But you let culture decide what's right. Culture in Germany in the 1930s thought it was okay to take people who were of Jewish heritage, people who had mental uh, um, um, issues, the, the, the way their brains were working didn't seem normative, whatever normative is. People who were deemed to be deviants in different ways. And the culture considered it okay to lock them up and kill them or work them to death. But it wasn't right to do it. Society can't decide an objective right and wrong because it changes. So it never was an objective right or wrong. It was just what society wanted. How about this? Do the powerful people get to decide? Heavens save us from that. Because they will always decide to their advantage. That's not objective right and wrong. Do you want the intellectual elite to decide? Do you think that some people's chemicals in their brains just zap so much better than the others? That those who zap faster are those who zap with greater, what we call, memory? They get to decide? That doesn't make it objective. That just makes it subjective to the intellectual. So philosophy through the history is charted through all of these different ideas. And the, the, the current in vogue idea is this. It just is. There is objective morality. Can't explain where it comes from. It's just part of the universe. It's built into the fabric. Now these people, which is my friend from Oxford, these people have to be very careful. Because the Christian will say, you bet it's built into the fabric of the universe. But the issue is, what makes it there? It's built in because God put it there. If this universe is just a sack of chemicals, chemicals, ultimately chemicals that are inorganic, that have just come together in a fashion we now call organic, they don't get to decide. So I brought some of these people for you to look at. One of them is the gentleman, Walter Sennett Armstrong, who wrote the book Morality Without God. Now, Walter Sennett Armstrong tries to argue that you can have objective right and wrong without God. 
And so read his book sometime if you want. He says an atheist can be moral. Well, I won't fight that point. I'll be quick to say, of course, an atheist can be moral. They're made in God's image. My question for you is, why? What does moral mean? Senate Armstrong assumes a meaning of moral in some ways and in some pages. He deals with it in another part, and I'll look at that in a minute. But he's, he's doing... He's doing a, a rhetorical gymnastics to try to contort his reasoning in such a way to find objective morality when there just is none. So he says, well, yes, let me tell you what's wrong. We define wrong as what harms people. Well, what do you mean by harms people? Well, it's wrong. That's called circular reasoning. Now, we Christians can say, yes, what's, what harms people is wrong because people are made in God's image and we don't want to harm them. Senator Armstrong's thesis applies in the Christian world. But if there's no God, it doesn't apply. Who even says what harm is? What is harm? Taking a sack of chemicals and altering the chemical structure is harm? Who decided that? Who made you God? Because that's what it takes. It takes something outside of us to say, no, in this form, this so-called sack of chemicals is imbued with my nature and they're unique and they're special and they're valuable. So when you harm them, you're doing something wrong. Yes, as a Christian, I get that in my worldview. But Senator Armstrong can't get there in his. Richard Dawkins tries to get there. His biggest selling book is called The Selfish Gene. Over a million copies sold. It's in like the fourth printing, I think, right now. Uh, uh, not fourth printing, but the fourth edition, uh, which is the 30th anniversary edition. Here's what he says. Dawkins is an evolutionist, okay? Atheist. He's one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. If you look at the way natural selection works. Now, I don't want to turn this into a biology lecture, uh, but but some of you know what this is. Others are sitting there going, oh, man, don't make me remember that. Natural selection is just the, 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 the phrase for the process within nature of how creatures select so that those most fit for the environment continue to propagate while those less fit generally fade away. So if we look at the way natural selection works, us selecting within just naturally within nature, it seems to follow that anything that's evolved by natural selection, by us picking, should be selfish. So we must expect when we go and look at the behavior He's British, so he spells behavior wrong. <clears throat> we must expect that when we go and look at the behavior of baboons, humans, and all other living creatures, we're going to find it to be selfish. Okay, I'm with you so far in part of this. Human beings 
have a great bit of selfishness about them. And if evolution is true and there's no God involved in it, then certainly if we look at the behavior of baboons and humans, we should find it to be selfish. If we find that our expectation is wrong, if we find we're not really a square peg, but we're a round peg, if we observe human behavior as truly altruistic, it can be selfless instead of selfish, then we're going to face, be faced with something puzzling, something that needs explaining. How can we understand that a human being might care for someone else when it doesn't benefit the human? Now, in the Christian worldview, we got this covered. We're made in the image of God. We're made with his morality. God is that way. Jesus, for example, didn't die for what he got out of it. He did that for us. The Christian worldview's got this idea that even though we're selfish and fallen, we don't measure up, we're still made in God's image and we want to and we're trying to and we're seeking to be better. And we know there's something noble about being altruistic or selfless. The Christians got it covered. But even Dawkins recognizes if all we are is a godless evolution, then we got a real problem because we ought to be being real selfish. So what he says is, ultimately, he says we've got some selfish gene within us, and his selfish gene within us says that it's going to achieve its goals by not being selfish. Here's what he says. He says, look, evolution says I'm out for numero uno, which is me. But I've got somewhere in my genetic makeup this recognition that I'm going to be best served sometimes by being selfless. So it's just genetically in me to be selfless, even though it runs contrary to everything evolution should be telling us I would be. It's somehow created in me. Now, he resolves the tension, and what he's really done here is he's disguised objective morality. Because he took it away. He's now made it subjective. It's whatever you and I think and feel. It's whatever our genetic structure is. He wants to say it's objectively good for us to be altruistic. And we've got an objective good. But that's a disguise. Because what he's really saying is it's all about you and me and whatever is best for the individual. We've just inbred in ourselves this selflessness. But it's not a real thing. It's just the way our chemical soup's working. That's a disguise. Works in the Christian worldview. No God. It's not objective morality. Now there's a guy who's actually put his finger on it. And I really like this guy. We got five minutes. But you got to make it through this guy with me. His name's Michael Ruse. Michael Ruse published in The Guardian. A British newspaper an article in the religion section, God is dead, long live morality. Now, Michael Ruse is an evolutionist without God. There are evolutionists with God. That's why we say a godless evolutionist. Michael Ruse is an evolutionist without God. And Michael Ruse, an evolutionist without God, 
says morality is genetic in us. It's in our genes. It's in our DNA. And it's parading around as if it's real and objective. But it's really just an emotion. It's just what we feel. It's just those electronic signals in our chemical soup we call a brain. He uncloaks this myth of objective morality. You can't have objective morality without an object, God, telling you it's moral or immoral. That's what objective is. Here's what he says. Let me put it up here bigger. God is dead. So why should I be good? The answer is, there's no grounds whatsoever for being good. There's no celestial headmaster who's going to give you six or six billion, billion, billion of the best if you're bad. Morality is flim-flam. Now, does this mean you can go out and just rape and pillage, behave like an ancient Roman grabbing Sabine women? Not at all. I said there are no grounds for being good, but that doesn't mean you should be bad. Indeed, there are those, and I'm one, who argue that only by recognizing the death of God can we possibly do that which we should and behave properly to our fellow humans and perhaps save the planet we all share, as if that's a value. It's just chemicals. Give me a break. We can give up all of that nonsense about women and gay people being inferior, about fertilized ova being human beings, about the earth being ours to exploit and destroy. Start with the fact that humans are naturally moral beings. Oh, we are? We want to get along with our fellows. We care about families. We feel we should put our hands in our pockets to protect or to for the widows and orphans. It's not a matter of chance. It's not cultural primarily. It, humans as animals have gone the route of sociality. We succeed, each of us individually, because we're part of a greater whole, and that whole is a lot better at surviving and reproducing than most other animals. Okay? So this is his effort to take Dawkins' selfish gene and continue to dress it up and, and hope you can find it. Morality is just a matter of emotions, like liking ice cream and sex and hating toothache and marking student papers. But it is and has to be a funny kind of emotion. It has to pretend that it's not an emotion. If we thought morality was no more than liking or not liking spinach, pretty quickly everything's going to break down. Before long... So... I had to skip. Morality has to come across as something more than emotion. It has to appear to be objective, even though it isn't really. Why should I be good? Why should you be good? Because that's what morality demands of us. It's bigger than the both of us. It's laid on us. We must accept it, just like we accept two plus two is four. He says, it ain't real. There's no such thing as objective morality. But we need to pretend it is. Because if people wake up and realize it's not, all hell, literally, will break loose. It will be all around us. Because that's what hell is. The absence of God. And so, he recognizes it. And was bold enough to write it and not dress it up. But the bottom line is, if there's no God... Oh, we can say there's objective morality, 
You know what? God is dead. This is the way he ends it. The new atheists think that's a significant finding. In this, as in just about everything else, they're completely mistaken. God is dead. Morality has no foundation. But let's pretend it does. And that returns us to where we started with the C.S. Lewis story. Because this is the classic example of the witch trying to persuade you. There was never any world but mine. Oh, you think you've got objective morality? There's no such thing as that. But you go right on ahead and pretend there is. Because otherwise you might steal my stuff. If there is, there is. If there's not, there's not. But everything in my life says that there is. And that's why anybody who's got a worldview that says the whole is a square is wrong. We're out of time. Do you want to take the three? Do you have? Can I have three minutes for the Phil Keggy song? Here's your Phil Keggy song with thanks to the monkeys and Neil Diamond who wrote the original. So here we go. I thought God was only true in fairy tales. Then for someone else, but not for me. Father was out to get me. I'm on a different team. Gnosticism was just another bad dream. And then I saw God's grace. I'm a believer. I got the human race. Changed out to my mind. World makes sense. Ooh, I'm a believer, not a deceiver. Now I'm not so blind. I thought God was more or less a silly thing. The more I thought, the less I was so sure. There's a world that's out there. And it should make sense I'm no longer sitting on the fence And then I saw God's grace I'm a believer Look at the human race Changed out to my mind The world makes sense Ooh, I'm a believer Not a deceiver Now I'm not so blind Can we mic him down just a little bit? He keeps going for a minute. Dale will get mad at me about a few points for home. Mic him down, keep me up. Thank you. Here are your points for home. The heavens proclaim God's righteousness and all the people see his glory. We just need to make sense of what we see. We need to understand the world around us because when we do, we see the glory of God. And we can ponder morality. And when we ponder morality, it tells us something about God. Morality and reality are very related. And there's no worldview that's going to give you that. Except the worldview that accurately reflects reality. And that's the one of God. And that's worth pondering. And why I'm not an agnostic. We're going to look at brand new reasons why you'll have a new handout, God willing, next week. 
go in God's grace. Lord, please bless my friends. Amen.